Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the fact that you, the Lord Jesus, has conquered sin and death and that we in Christ are more than conquerors. We worship you. We praise you this morning. We thank you that we can join together as your people and worship you. We thank you for this opportunity now to read your word, to humble ourselves underneath it, to listen to it, to be changed by it. Holy Spirit, move amongst us, we pray this morning. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the Christmas period, we receive quite a lot of newsletters from people. I don't know if you get these, but we get quite a lot of these from different folks. Some are more interesting than others. Some are a list of what, you know, dear Beth is doing in her exams and all her clubs she's joining, and others are really actually quite interesting. Uh, we've got this one here from our friends who we used to work with in Hereford, Martin and Rachel Irwin. Lots of things that they're up to, and uh, Martin has moved, and they're now heading up the work of Counties, which is an evangelist network uh, in England. So it's good to get uh, news like that and to be able to pray, and things there for us to, to pray for. They're really helpful uh, letters that we get. I've got a letter here from my consultant to my GP, which is the latest uh, list of all my various uh, things that aren't quite working in my body. I won't read that out to you. It makes pretty depressing reading. And you might also have got letters over Christmas, bills and demands. Maybe you get letters from, you know, that say HM Revenue and Customs, and it might be a, you know, a tax demand. Nobody wants to get those kind of things. Or even a letter saying your tax credits are being reduced or there's a benefit that you have that you're not going to get anymore. They're letters that nobody wants. It's nice to get letters from friends, nice to get letters with good news in it. Not so good to get letters perhaps from the doctor, especially not from the tax office. All sorts of different letters we get from different people at times. Some of them are more welcome than others. Well, you know, the New Testament of the Bible contains 22 letters. And of the 22 that are in there, Paul wrote 13. Paul was one of the main leaders of the church in the New Testament period. He was an apostle, which meant he had special authority from God. And he wrote 13 of them. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at these letters. We're going to look at one of these letters, and it's called Second Thessalonians. Paul wrote two letters to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was and still is a city, which is in what is now northern Greece. We're going to see a map in a little bit of that. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, which we studied last year. We went through that, if you remember. I'm not sure if you do or not, but uh, we studied that last year. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in about 51, 52 AD, which was on his second great missionary journey. He wrote it from Corinth, probably. And he wrote the letter because he'd recently been in Thessalonica. He'd preached about Jesus, and he'd planted a church. He'd started a church there. He spent at least three weeks there, probably quite a bit longer than that. We know that because the book of Acts records his visit there, and it tells us what actually happened. So before we get into 2 Thessalonians this morning, we're going to go back to Acts, and we're going to read what happened when that church began. Okay, so if you want to turn, if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Acts chapter 17. This just helps us get a bit of the the sense of the setting of uh, both Paul's first and his second letter, and it helps us make a little bit more sense of some of the stuff that Paul writes about, particularly in this morning's passage in, in 2 Thessalonians 1. So, Uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to read from verses 1 to 15. You can just listen if you want, or if you want to follow along with me, you're very welcome. So uh, Acts chapter 17, Luke is writing this. This is what's happened uh, as the uh, church leaders, the apostles, were traveling around and planting new churches and so on. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 15. When they had passed through Amphipolis, something like that, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ or the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers set Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue there. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Paul and Timothy and Silas had traveled through the province, the Roman province of Macedonia, which was one of the two Roman provinces of what we now call Greece. There's a picture up there on the wall for you. Um, If you look uh, to the left, you'll see Greece, uh, which was then made up of two Roman provinces, Macedonia to the north and and then to the south, uh, you've got uh, the rest of Greece. Now, the Macedonia of the Bible isn't to be confused with modern-day Macedonia, which is a separate country, which is actually further north than Greece is today. Now, Thessalonica is still in northern Greece. It's now called Thessaloniki, or sometimes Salonica, and they even have a well-known football team there, I believe, not that I know anything about football. And as Paul and Silas and Timothy arrived in Thessalonica, they stayed there for a while. We know that because the because Luke writing an act says that he preached there for three Sabbaths, which means at the very least, Paul and the team were there for three weeks, probably longer than that. And as he preached to the Jews in the synagogue, and he told them about Jesus, some of them responded and became Christians. And in addition to the Jews, there was a much larger group of non-Jewish Greeks who also responded and put their faith and trust in Jesus. But the Jews who hadn't accepted uh, what Paul said had become jealous. This was the vast majority of them. And they rounded up this mob from the marketplace and they started a big riot there in the city. So Paul and Silas had to get out. There's a picture there. That's the, the remains of that marketplace, the very marketplace that we've read about there in Acts 17. And so the new group of Christians who were left behind, as, as Paul and Silas and his team just have to get out for their own lives, they have to flee and to go, they leave behind this, this new group of Christians and this new group of Christians form a church. A new church is started. And so Paul was really keen as soon as possible, as soon as he got to Corinth, to write to them, to encourage them, because he left them behind and, and the circumstances were far from ideal or what Paul would have perhaps have wished for. So he wanted to write to them as soon as he could to encourage them because they were facing all kinds of persecution. This church was born in persecution. Persecution didn't kind of start down the road at some point. It it was birthed in persecution right from day one. There was riots. There was people stirring up hatred of these Christians. Some of them were Jews and were facing all sorts of hostility from other Jews who weren't accepting Jesus, who were rejecting the good news about Jesus. Some of them were Greeks. And some of their fellow Greeks and Romans were giving them a really hard time. 
And they were all as a group, as a church together, facing significant persecution. Some of them, it seems, have probably been killed as well. It's a really, really difficult time for them. So Paul wrote this letter to them, 1 Thessalonians. And we, and we studied that letter together last year and went right the way through that. And then Paul, probably only just a few months later, after having written 1 Thessalonians, feels the need to write 2 Thessalonians. Probably only a few months later. And it seems that there are three main reasons for this. If we look through 2 Thessalonians, there seems to be three kind of themes that Paul feels the need to deal with. Firstly, he wanted to encourage them to keep going despite the persecution that they were facing. Things hadn't improved. If anything, things had got worse for them persecution-wise. So Paul wanted to encourage them to keep going. And secondly, he needed to correct some misunderstandings that they had about the return of Jesus. And we're going to look at that next week. And thirdly, he needed to warn some of them who were being lazy. It seems that maybe some of them thought, well, you know, if Jesus is coming back at any minute, we could just quit our jobs and, and, and laze around and, 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 and do nothing. And Paul had to correct that. So with that in mind, they're the, they're the kind of big three themes that Paul feels he needs to address. And so he's writing this letter. Let's read chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. That's the kind of background to what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. So 2 Thessalonians, just flip over in your Bible a little way. 2 Thessalonians, we're going to read the whole chapter of uh, chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. So Paul's in Corinth. He's writing this letter to this group of Christians who are being persecuted. And it's principally from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But it's Paul, really. He's the main guy, and he's writing this letter. So verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this first chapter deals with the first issue that Paul wanted to help them with, which namely was the fact that they were facing immense and terrible persecution from the people around them in the city that they lived. They were being persecuted for being followers of Jesus. Things were mostly going well inside the church. Paul commends them for how, for how their uh, relationships are with each other and their faith and so on. But things outside the church weren't so good. They were still facing immense persecution for being followers of Jesus. Look at verse 3. Paul says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. So things were going well inside the church. That was good. But outside was a different matter. 
The persecution that had started from day one, from the moment the first person had trusted in Jesus, that persecution was just as bad and probably was even worse now than it had been when the church had started. Because in verse 4, Paul says this, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Now, there should be an outline on your seat on the flip side of your bulletin. There's an outline with all the verses on, and there's some space there for you to write one or two things in as well. So Paul says, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. And in verse 5, he says that they were suffering for the sake of God's kingdom. And in verse 6, he talks about those who were troubling them. They were really facing great difficulties. Life was incredibly difficult for these first followers of Jesus. And probably like most Christians, they were having health struggles. They were having financial struggles and and quite likely family problems and struggles as well. But the key thing that they were facing was this open and intense persecution for being Christians. You know, persecution has always been part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus said these words, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now we're very fortunate to live in a country where for many years, perhaps several hundred years, Christians haven't been persecuted. But things are beginning to change. And we need to be ready as followers of Jesus that you know, life may not always continue just as nicely as it's continuing this morning. That we're able to sit here and quite freely and able to gather as Christians. It may not and is highly likely not to be like this in the years ahead. We need to be ready for increased opposition to the gospel, the, the, uh, the truth about who Jesus is and, and what he's done and so on. We need to be ready for opposition to the church, the very... Uh, organization of the church and and local churches and we need to be ready for opposition to to people like you and me people who love Jesus and seek to live for him you know for many Christians around the world it's always been like this and actually we live in a very special period of time this is kind of unique this is abnormal normality is persecution normality is for the church to be on the edge of society we've just grown up and, and been born and lived in a situation where the church is at the center and that is no longer going to be the case in the UK Most Christians around the world, it has been illegal for perhaps for many of them to be a Christian. In some cases, in some countries today, if you become a Christian, you'd be put to death. That's terrifying, isn't it? That is the reality for so many Christians today. So many people who love Jesus is the death penalty or at very least incredible persecution and opposition. And there's two things that we can do as we sit in you know, great peace and safety here this morning. There's two things that we can do to help our brothers and sisters around the world who face this kind of persecution. Firstly, we can pray for them. We can't perhaps always go and intervene and stop things happening, but we can pray for them. And secondly, we can give financially to organizations who try and help persecuted Christians. I flagged up two organizations that you might want to look at, and and these websites are on your outline. The first one is Barnabas Fund, and the second one is an organization called Release International. And we have the magazines for these in the back hall in the rack. We also collect, usually once a year, an offering, which goes uh, towards the work of Barnabas Fund. And I'd really encourage you to check those out, to get on their mailing lists, their email mailing list or the magazine, and to look at, you know, how can I be involved with that? Perhaps through praying for persecuted Christians, and maybe for giving, too, towards uh, helping those folks. But closer to home, we need to be ready for things to get much harder for us here in the UK to openly follow Jesus. We need to be ready for this to happen so that it doesn't catch us by surprise. 
Maybe some of you have already experienced a little bit of this opposition and hatred from other people. Maybe at school, maybe at work, or maybe even in your family where you're the only Christian and the people around you don't appreciate your faith in Jesus, your love for Jesus. And you've begun to experience some real opposition, being kind of excluded from things or, or being made fun of, or even in some cases really facing real persecution. It's, begun, it's going to become... I think the norm in this country for many, many Christians. And there's no magic solution to that. Simply a fact of life. It's, what it, it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And we need to be ready for this. If we believe that we will never face persecution or opposition, then we're going to be severely disappointed. We're going to be badly disappointed. And it's not just persecution for being a Christian. That's mainly what Paul is focusing on in this passage. But we'll also face all sorts of other trials and problems as well. Paul talks in verse 4 about persecutions, but he also mentions the word trials. He says that he talks about the trials that they're enduring. And the word trials is a much more general world. It can include health problems and employment problems and financial problems and, and, and family problems and relationship issues. You know, some people teach that if you trust in Jesus and if you just have enough faith or if you give enough money to the church, then you're going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and everything's going to be great in your life. I have to tell you, that is a lie. And it's a deeply unhelpful lie. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible is very clear that we will face all sorts of trials, including persecution, but also involving our health and our finances and our families. Trusting in Jesus is not a magic wand to suddenly have a healthy, wealthy life. That is not the gospel. That is not the Christian faith. And so write this down. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I should expect trials, suffering, and persecution. That is the norm. Anything else is actually abnormal. If you're in that place, God bless you. That's fantastic. But for most of us, through most of our life, we will, we will face trials, we will face suffering, and we will face persecution. And if we have an understanding of the Bible that doesn't include an expectation of trials and and suffering and persecution, then not only is our understanding actually wrong, and and that's dangerous in itself, but we'll also struggle to know what's happening to us when problems do come along, because they will come along. And if we've bought into this this false idea that that if I trust in Jesus, I'm always going to be happy and and wealthy and prosperous, then our, our faith is going to come crashing down because that will not happen. We will face problems. We will face trials. We will have all sorts of difficulties. We need to be ready for that. Suffering, trials, problems, and persecution are normal and are to be expected. And if we don't face them, then it's actually abnormal. Part of the reason that we face trials, suffering, persecution, is to give us an opportunity to prove that our faith is genuine. It's not the only reason by any means. But one of the reasons we have that bad things happen to us is to give us an opportunity to prove that our faith is genuine. Look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7. He says this, For a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What Peter is saying is that God allows us to have trials and problems of all sorts of different natures in order to prove whether our faith in him is genuine or not. If our faith is genuine, we will persevere. We might be just hanging on by our fingertips, but we will persevere to the end. If our faith is not genuine, if we've not really trusted in Jesus, if we've not truly surrendered our lives to him, then when those trials, suffering and persecution come along, and they will, 
then we'll turn away from God. And because the Christians in Thessalonica that Paul was writing to had persevered and hadn't turned away from God, despite facing intense persecution and difficulties and trials, Paul says that this proves that they really are Christians. Look at what he says in verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, Paul isn't saying that they had to, to, have, you know, they had to do certain things or, or prove that they were able to do certain things to go to heaven. We, we, we get to go to heaven simply by trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. But what he's saying is this. When a person trusts in Jesus, they will face all sorts of trials and problems. We will face suffering in this life. But if we come through that, it shows that our faith is genuine. And that we're worthy to be part of God's kingdom. We may just come through hanging on by our fingertips, but we will persevere nonetheless if our faith in Jesus is genuine. But as well as helping the Christians in Thessalonica and us today, 2,000 years later, to face up to the reality of persecution, Paul also wants to remind us that God is a God of justice. And that isn't just about persecution. God hasn't forgotten the Christians. The people in Thessalonica, just like many Christians around the world today, and maybe even a little bit like you, maybe this morning you feel a little bit like that. Maybe in your, in your school, in your class at school, or, or in your workplace, or in your family, they faced rejection. They faced dishonor. They were outcasts in the city of Thessalonica. And maybe today you feel a little bit like that at work, or about... or or at school or maybe even in your family. But look at what Paul says. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Jesus will come back to this world. Jesus is coming again. We believe that, don't we? Amen? Jesus is coming again. And all persecution will come to an end in that moment. Everything bad will cease when Jesus comes again. And those who've been persecuted for following Jesus will be with Jesus forever and forever, and they will receive great honor. We're going to look at that in a minute. But those who've done the persecuting will face God's wrath. They'll be punished, Paul says here, with eternal punishment. Paul says this in verses 8 to 9. He, that's God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now that is a really serious verse. Because this is saying that not only will those who persecute Christians face God's wrath, but actually all those who reject God. All those who have rejected God, who have refused to surrender their lives to God, all those that have refused to obey Jesus and his good news, the gospel, all of those who are, re- who are rejecting God and saying to Jesus, no, you, I am not yours, you, you are not my Lord. All those who reject God and reject Jesus will face God's wrath. What will that mean? Well, Paul says that they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of, of his power. It doesn't mean annihilation. Those who reject God don't cease to exist at some point in the future. That might even be a better option for them. But instead, what happens is that they experience ongoing punishment. They experience destruction continuously. The Bible describes it in various ways. It talks about unquenchable fire. It talks about a fiery furnace. It talks about blackest darkness. Uh, 
a fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the graphic language that, that, that Jesus uses often when he's talking about this and the Bible uses often seems to kind of, doesn't re- it's, it's a bit inadequate really. It never really fully describes the reality of the awfulness of what it means to be shut out from God's presence. Whatever actually happens, and lots of these I think are picture, are sort of metaphors, trying to describe something of the awfulness of what it means to face God's wrath. Whatever actually happens is going to be truly awful. And it seems to me that at the heart of the suffering that people will experience, those who reject God, those who refuse to trust in Jesus, is that even though they've been made by God, and were created to live in a relationship with God, they will spend eternity separated from God. Made by God, made for God, but separated from God forever. Looking on from a distance, as it were, brutally aware now of what they could have had, and yet now with the knowledge that they can never have it. It's a bit like, you know, standing outside of something and looking in, and I could have had that, I could have had all of those wonderful things in there, but, but I'm stuck outside, I'm shut outside, and forever I've got to look on knowing what could have been. And, and it seems to me that part and parcel of this sense of punishment is that sense of being isolated and cut off and separated and excluded from all that is good because, we're ex- because they are excluded from God. Those who reject God in this life will be rejected by God for all eternity, banished from his presence, and banished from everything that is good. This is the heart of the Christian message. And as followers of Jesus, we need to ensure that those around us that we're seeking to tell about Jesus, that we don't just tell them about his love, that he loves them, that that he died on the cross. If we're going to be faithful to that, we need to also to warn people of the coming wrath that is coming. That we rescue people from God's coming wrath, because this is really, really serious. What happens if you're someone who so far in your life has been rejecting God? You're not a follower of Jesus. You haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you've even opposed other Christians. Well, I, I have to tell you this morning, and I, and I wouldn't be honest if I didn't do this, that if you're rejecting God, you might not be a persecutor of Christians, but if this morning you are refusing to surrender your life to God, then you face everlasting destruction. You'll be shut out from God's presence and all the blessings he offers forever with no way back, no second chance. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, Paul, the man who's writing this letter, he was once a persecutor, a rejecter of God, a rejecter of Jesus. He hated Jesus, he hated Christians, and he rounded Christians up and he had them put in prison and probably even killed. And then one day, Paul had an encounter with the Lord Jesus. And Paul surrendered his life to him. And he was never the same again. And in that moment, Paul went from being somebody who was facing God's wrath the kind of people that Paul's describing in this passage, he went from being like that to being somebody who, like the other Christians in Thessalonica, could look forward to being with Jesus forever because he had accepted the Lord Jesus as his saviour. It may be this morning that I've been describing you. You're someone who's never accepted Jesus. You might not describe yourself as a rejecter of God, but but by not accepting Jesus, by not, as it were, kind of bowing the knee and asking him to be your Lord and saviour, you are rejecting God and you are rejecting Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity right now to put that right. I want us just to pause for a moment to, and it's an opportunity for you to put your situation right. If you want to get right with God, then there's no better time than right this very moment, right now, to do that. 
to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died for you. That he was punished for your sins. In your place. On the cross. To turn away from your sins. To, to, to ask God to forgive you. And to surrender your life to him. So that he is your Lord and Savior. And you can do that right now. So let's just bow our heads. Just for a moment. Let's just close our eyes. It's helpful that people are, that we're not looking at other folks. Just bow our heads. Close our eyes. And if that's a step that you need to take. If God is really speaking to you today, if you sense that, then now's an opportunity for you in the, in the silence and in the quietness of your own heart. You don't need to say anything out loud, but just to reach out to God, as it were, to say, I'm sorry for rejecting you, God. I'm sorry that I've been rejecting you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you'd forgive me. And I pray that you'd forgive me for my sins. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for me. And I ask you now to, to, to be my Lord, my Savior. I, I give you my life. I surrender it to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And if that's something that you've done this morning or that you want to do, then, then please do come and chat with me afterwards. I'd be delighted to talk to you more about that. You know, when Jesus comes again, those who've rejected God and have refused to obey the Lord Jesus will be punished with everlasting destruction. And of course, Paul was specifically referring to those who were persecuting the Christians in Thessalonica. And he was doing that to give them comfort because at the, at the moment for them, their life was pretty terrible. And it would have seemed to them as if God was kind of unjust. You know, their life was awful and their persecutors were just getting away with it. Was there no justice? But Paul's point is this, that when Jesus returns, not only do those who reject God face his wrath, but also that those who've accepted God and have obeyed Jesus will experience blessing that is truly out of this world. Paul says that those who reject God will be punished on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believe their testimony to you. When Jesus comes, he's going to be glorified in his holy people. His holy people, that's those who love him. That, that's us this morning if you love Jesus. You're part of his holy people. Those who love Jesus will worship and praise and honor him when he comes again. Jesus has been and continues to be rejected by many. But when he comes for those of us who love him, we will truly and finally give him the praise and the worship that he truly deserves. And not only will we worship him, Paul says here we're going to marvel at him. In other words, Jesus is just this amazing source of wonder and amazement. We'll never get tired of being in awe of Jesus, to, to gaze upon Jesus forever and ever, lost in marvel and wonder at our wonderful Savior. And this would have been a great encouragement to these persecuted Christians in Thessalonica, and it should be a great encouragement to us today if we love Jesus. One day, and it could be today, Jesus will come again. And if we love him, we'll be with him forever. We'll be lost in awe and wonder as we gaze on our wonderful Lord Jesus, the one who died for us, who loved us and rose again. You know, this life can be incredibly hard at times, but God wants us to stay focused on the Lord Jesus and the knowledge that he is coming back and that if we love him, we're going to be with him forever. And it might be that for you right now, life is hard. It might be that persecution and opposition at school or at work. It might be that you're facing some really tough health problems or there's really tough health problems in your family or you've got relationship struggles or, or, or financial problems. These kind of problems are normal and we should expect them, but they're not without purpose. 
and at least one of the purposes of them is to reveal the genuineness of our faith. The problems we face can be really difficult, but they won't last forever. This is not all there is. One day the Lord Jesus will bring to an end all the suffering of those that love him and obey him. And in the meantime, the call for us is to stay focused, to stay focused on living for him. Paul says this, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. With the knowledge that Jesus is coming and we're going to be free from sin and suffering forever and are going to gaze upon our wonderful Lord Jesus, let's make sure that we live a life that's worthy of our calling. We've been forgiven, we've been given eternal life, we've been made holy if we've trusted in Jesus. So let's live lives that live up to that new identity, Paul is saying. Let's let's get busy carrying out what Paul calls every good purpose. Let's get busy carrying out those acts of service to God, prompted by our faith and our belief that God will bless what we do. Because if we live like this, then it will bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says this, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. After all that the Lord Jesus has done for us in saving us, and in the light of all that he's going to do in taking us to be with him forever, our heart's desire ought to be and should be, shouldn't it, to want to bring glory to the name of Jesus. You see, write this down. God wants me to bring glory to Jesus through my life. God wants me, he wants you to bring glory to Jesus through our lives. I wonder if your life brings glory to Jesus. Is that how you would describe your life today? As you, as you kind of look back on this last week, has your, has your speech, has the way you talk, has what you've done with your finances, with, with, with your spare time, has what you, you've done with, uh, you know, in, in, through your relationships, your actions, have they brought glory to Jesus? Has Jesus' name been lifted up? Has it been glorified through the way that you've behaved this week? God wants us to bring glory to Jesus. But here's the amazing thing. This is phenomenal. I know this. I've been reading this all my life. But this this week as I was studying this, this blew me away all over again. Paul says this in verse 12, that we are going to be glorified in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again, we are going to be glorified in him. We're going to share in the glory that Jesus has. That is mind-blowing. God wants us to bring glory to Jesus, but here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus is actually going to give us glory. Paul writes these words in Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, in other words, children of God, people who've trusted in him, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. And we are je- This morning, if we've trusted in Jesus, we, we are joint heirs alongside Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, calls, uh, Jesus says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's our big brother. It's phenomenal. We are joint heirs alongside Jesus, and just as one day he will receive all the glory when he rules and reigns, so too we will receive and we will share in some way in his glory. Is it just me who finds that mind-blowing? We are going to share in the glory of Jesus. And right now we share to some degree in his sufferings. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. But how much more will we share in his glory? 
you would think it would be enough that we're forgiven, that we've been made right with God, that we've got eternal life. But God doesn't stop there. Because when Jesus comes again, we get to share in his glory. I don't know about you, but I find that just staggering. Just amazing. It's not because we've earned it. Paul says in verse 12 that it's according to the grace of God. In other words, it's, it's, it's a free gift that we can't earn uh, or that we don't deserve. We will face trials. We will face suffering and even persecution. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. We're sharing in Jesus' sufferings right now to some degree or other. But one day, one day if we love Jesus and if we've surrendered our lives to him, one day we're going to be raised up and honored alongside the Lord Jesus. Paul says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles. They might not seem light and momentary right now, but Paul says, look, in comparison to the eternal glory that we are going to share with Jesus, they're light and momentary. And they are achieving that glory for us as they prove the genuineness of our faith. This morning we're going to just come to an end and and finish, and and Lucy's going to finish the service for us. I'm I'm not going to pray, but Lucy's going to uh, finish the service as she sings and performs a song for us. The words are going to be up there on the screen for you not to sing along to, but just to to be blessed by the words as you listen to uh, Lucy sing. It's a song, There is a Day, that all creation's waiting for day of freedom and liberation from the earth when Jesus comes again. And as we look for that day, if we know and love Jesus, then we long for that day. This morning, if that day brings fear for you, then it doesn't need to. Put, put that right and get right with God. But for, for perhaps many of us, perhaps all of us, I don't know this morning, who know and love Jesus, let us worship him this morning as we listen to this beautiful song sung beautifully for us. Thanks.